what I don't want to do is, uh, and I see it happen in a lot of movies, is where they just turn up the soundtrack, all right, to uh, uh, like create a false energy, or in particular to create like you know a sense of period that they're not investing in the picture. All right, okay, it's the '60s. We'll play a lot of '60s songs, and that will create the period. All right, to me that's cheap and it's annoying. And like listening to the radio and uh, uh, and watching them watching a movie at the same time, they don't really go together, and it's and it's just like a it, it just seems cheap to me. Hey there, film buds! Welcome back to the Film Buds podcast. I'm your host Paul, and I'm Lauren. And uh, the clip that you just listened to uh, is a very little brief snippet from a Quentin Tarantino interview discussion. That's actually disc two of the collector's edition of the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. And I decided to include it because it ultimately, I think, sums up a large part of what our discussion is all about today, which is how to create period in a movie. Um, You know, last week we talked about how two auteurs handled history, but this week I really wanted to talk about um, how people handle the creation of period, Um, because it's a very particular thing, whether you're doing it on stage, whether you're doing it on film. Um, And so I wanted to kind of make today's episode all about whether or not a film is successful at creating period, how it creates period, what kind of period films exist, and what all you can do with it. Um, Dear, how do you feel about period films? Um, I enjoy them. I usually try not to hold too much stock in the accuracy most of the time because, you know, it's a, it's a movie and for the most part, movie's going to do what a movie's going to do, which is be dramatic and theatrical and that's not always not necessarily how history happened. But I also like them as like a it's like a window into a into a past feeling even if it's not necessarily entirely historically accurate, it does have um, the right mood that um, evokes a time period usually. And even if it's about like historical figures and is mostly historically accurate, um, you know, it can be used as a, as a visual resource along with other, um, you know, physical resources as well to, to help create uh, an accurate timeline of events? No, I think that's all pretty fair. Um, as, a, as a little bit of a, of a quick follow-up, when how far back does a film have to go? Here's a good question. How far back does a film have to go for you to consider it a period film? Oh, honestly, I guess not the period that we're living in currently, but has to be actively trying to evoke a different time if that makes sense you know we're here in the the 2020s right now you know if somebody was like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna do a movie about 2018 that doesn't that no, doesn't really like a current events film on a certain level yeah exactly but like even just going back to like 2000 as as a year it's a completely different mood and it's a it's a different feeling when when invoking that time period versus when you're doing something for the here and the now. So I'd say probably like, you know, um, 
I guess, 20 years to just be, like, a nice cushion back. Minimum of 20 years. Because I feel like even with 10 years back, we start to get into the the muddiness of, like, how that time period really feels. I feel like we need that little bit more of a, a buffer of time to just really be able to cement it. Mm-hmm. And in, like, an, in an accurate way. So, yeah. I'd say, like, 20 years. I think that that's honestly probably a pretty fair um, range, a pretty, a pretty fair sort of ballpark estimate. You know, if it's, if it's 10 years ago, it's still relatively contemporaneous, you know, that's very much contemporary modern history. But yeah, you know, the moment that you go back to the 90s, right, like, let's say that you wanted to go and set something in, in 1995, Austin, Texas. We're now talking about digitally painting out huge parts of modern day Austin, digitally painting in old parts of Austin to recreate the skyline, you know? And then we're going to have to be looking for locations that look like Austin did all the way back in 1995. And so even though, you know, for some of us that were born in the 90s, that doesn't seem that long ago, we are now solidly getting more into a period. Um you know, jokes that are particularly of that time, political figures that are politically of that time. Um, so yeah, I think that that's probably a pretty good ballpark. Well, because I was thinking about it, um, and when we watched the, the Looming Tower, enough time had passed for more evidence to come forth and, you know, enough enough hindsight in in play for us to, to make something that is the most accurate of this time talking about 9-11. And so I don't think that any of the movies that came out talking about 9-11 that were like right after it can be really used as, as, a, as, a, as a blind resource, I guess, you know, as a looking at it without the muddiness of living through the time itself and, and how that emotionality feels. Um, yeah, so I think that like that's a, to, to your point, really being able to 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 look at a time period without kind of like your own personal bias as well of of the events and who these people were and etc you know being able to to have all of the evidence as well because the more time passes the more evidence comes out about whatever your event is not just it being my example of 9-11 but also you know with our movies that we're going to talk about coming up you know with these time periods we've had enough time from then because like the most recent one in in time is like the 70s it's been 50 years mm-hmm. you know i think that we can we can look back and be like the whole decade now instead of it being like a well it's only been a few years no absolutely and since you brought it up uh today's films we're tackling three films uh from three different decades uh, all of them, of course, continuing in our theme of movies that came out in 2021 that we missed, you know, for whatever reason. Um, and so our first movie uh, is Being the Ricardos, uh, the Aaron Sorkin biopic about um, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Um, Last Night in Soho, which is Edgar Wright's uh, sort of haunting story. It's called, I think that they refer to it on, on like, the, the Wikipedia as, like, a psychological horror thriller. 
I think it's kind of a haunting story on a certain level, but we can discuss that when we get to the movie itself. Um, and then lastly, The French Dispatch. Uh, Wes Anderson's um, sort of anthology film that's all sort of, you know, taking place within the confines of, of stories told in an issue of a fictional newspaper, The French Dispatch. Um, so... They're all three very different, but they all three tackle period. Um, the I believe that it's 1952, 1953 for being the Ricardos. It's approximately December of 65 to maybe 68 um, across Last Night in Soho. And it's 75 for the, the sort of now moments of the French Dispatch, but there are a few moments that go back further in time as well, and are told in sort of retroactive flashback. Um, before we jump into it as a general framework, you know, uh, what do we mean when we say a period piece? So, like Lauren said, a period piece is a film that essentially has to go and talk about some sort of historical period in a very particular way. Um, and so the question becomes then, how do you, how do you create period? How do you evoke it? Um, and, you know, it's, it's, of course, obviously the costumes, the makeup, the cars on the street. Um, but you also have to think about the geography of the city at that time. Um, you have to think about what was popular at that time, not just musically speaking, but in the overall sense of the culture. Um, what were some of the geopolitical things happening, depending on the type of period piece that you're making? Um... And it's actually a very difficult thing, you know, to go and truly craft, not just, oh, we threw some costumes on them, you know, it's vague enough that it's kind of there. It's another thing to truly create an immersive historical experience that looks as though there's no trace really of the modern world left on the surface of the film. Um... There are multiple, uh, and a period piece also does not necessarily have to be about a historical event, right? There are different types of historical period films that you can make. You can, of course, make a biographical picture or a biopic, which focuses either on a particular event or a particular person specifically. Uh, generally speaking, there are four categories. Biopics are one of them. The other one is considered the historical epic, Something like Ben-Hur, you know, it's this great, big, explosive, you know, sort of event in history and where we're doing the big version of it. A little bit almost like 1917, I would say, is something of a historical epic. Or Dunkirk. Um, because even though those events happened, we're also following some people that aren't really real as well. So we're taking some liberties a little bit with the history. Kind of like... Titanic? Yeah, a little bit. But I guess that one's not really like an epic in the sense that like it, it spans over... That one is in our next category, I would say. Historical romance. Oh. Titanic, Atonement, these kinds of, of movies. Copy. Um, where the thing that's really driving us is our, our romance in the, in the midst of this big historical moment. Copy. Okay. I didn't realize that that was going to be a category. <laughs> 
Uh, and then lastly, we also have what's referred to as the costume drama, uh, which can be something like Gone with the Wind, or for a more modern example, the Downton Abbey movie, which is also a, a particular sort of type of historical uh, costume drama referred to as the upstairs-downstairs drama, because it's about the the people who own the house and live upstairs and the people who live below it and are the help. It's an upstairs-downstairs drama. Okay, and I guess as we've gone through, like, from, from number one to this fourth one, we've gotten less and less historically accurate as the as the categories have gone on. Um, yeah, I suppose you can absolutely still incorporate um, actual historical events into a costume drama, but we are probably more than likely dealing with absolutely fictitious people, you know, in the context of this world, right? Because um, the Civil War happens in the context of Gone with the Wind and affects the narrative. World War One, I, I believe, happens in the context of Downton Abbey and affects the family. Well, to go back to a point that you had said earlier about um, the geopolitical atmosphere mm-hmm. of the time period, I feel like in order to to really have something entirely you know i can say hey that is the 60s we have to we have to hit on at least like the big things that happened Mm -hmm. you know we can't we can't talk about the 60s and have it be completely devoid of the fact that like you know if we're talking about 60s in in america we can't we can't go around and be like but segregation was definitely not a part of it you know we we can't like completely cleanse the decade of all of its bad things because then it still doesn't feel it doesn't evoke the right mood for it even if that's not the story that you're telling no that's fair um which i think is to your point of it being like the the wars still have to happen in like these time periods even if they're not necessarily a part of the story that you're telling mm -hmm. even if we're not seeing joe in the trenches yeah you know Joe went off to war, like, we still have to understand that. No, yeah, because it's also, I think, a grounding force for the, the people watching as well to be like, oh, okay, so we've we've jumped from here to here, or, oh, okay, I know exactly what year we are now without you necessarily having to put on, like, a time stamp on it, because it's, like, general knowledge at that point. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> um. So who's responsible for making period happen in a movie, right? Because in a movie, you have the director, you have the producers, you have a screenwriter. So who's responsible for making period? Well, definitely the scriptwriter has a, a part in that task. Because a scriptwriter has to create what sounds right. You know, you can have some anachronistic dialogue. But if you're doing something that's, you know, set in 1900, you can't have them sounding like someone that, that's in 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely the script writer is a part of that. You have to look at the, the context of the language of the time, looking at, uh, books that were written, interviews, um, films, etc. Well, not films, in the context of 1900, but, you know, you have to look at whatever sort of primary documents that you have of that time to figure out what people sounded like back then. Mm-hmm. Um... The director, of course, has some sort of say because they're supposed to be taking that text and translating it. And so, you know, they they have a certain amount of 
more final approval in how the period looks on screen than in, I would say, creating it directly. They have an idea, they translate it off of the script, and then they go and they give it over to an entire team. So who are some of the teams and groups of people inside of a production that are really responsible for historical accuracy or lack thereof, depending? Um, at that point, we're looking at the art department. We're looking at the production designer uh, who sort of, you know, oversees larger teams and is someone that people answer up to. Um, you have the art director, set dresser, uh, who is the person who comes through and, you know, you, you rent out a, a hotel ballroom, you know, for some sort of 1960s New Year's Eve scene. There now the set dresser is the one that comes in and finds light fixtures and tables and cutlery and all sorts of things that they're then going to put around the scene to make that ballroom a 1960s ballroom. Um, prop masters. Um, you have the wardrobe department, the costume department, which also includes um, the wardrobe supervisor, the set costumer, a costume coordinator, a tailor, a shopper, because sometimes also this includes going out and buying actual period pieces, either for screen use or even for reproduction. Um, then you're looking at the sound department. It has to sound like the time, right? Not just in terms of the music. What does a siren sound like on a police car in 60s London? It doesn't sound like a siren on a police car now, or even an American police car. The visual effects department, they've got to go through and like I used with the Austin example. They've got to clear out what wasn't there and put back what is there for that time period. Hair and makeup, uh, who, which is also known as the vanities department. Um, <laughs> because, of, because of the actual piece of furniture, the vanity? Uh, I don't know. Also, I think it's because, you know, oh, the I have to have my makeup just so, you know, the vanities department. I, I think it might be both. <laughs> I think it's a little bit of both. Um, which includes your makeup artists, your makeup designer, your hair designer, um, etc. And then you also will sometimes have particular historians or specialists brought in to guarantee certain accuracy, right? So um, Lauren's father, uh, Terrence, is a World War reenactor. And so sometimes the guys who work in reenactments of these things get invited onto film productions to walk around and go, no, they wouldn't have that on, you know. No, that's, that's a, a decade later's, you know, military code. It needs to be this one. And so they come through and kind of help make sure that there's screen accuracy to certain things. I love that you brought him up because I was just thinking about that. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, when they had um, all of the reenactors on the movie that he did just to be like extras and stuff because they already owned all of the, like, all of the period accurate clothing or at least recreations of it. That's, that's, that's great. I love that we were <laughs> on the same wavelength with that. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of an, a broad overview on on period, what creates it, what it's like. And so now I think that since we've bored them to tears, I'm sure at this point, very dry stuff. Aww. Um, why don't we go ahead and jump into our first uh, historical film, our first period film, which is the biopic being the Ricardos. And we have a clip, so take a listen.
action. Lucy, I'm home. Why is this coming out now? Lucille Ball's a threat to the American way of life. Does the FBI have any case against Lucy? I need you to help me save my marriage. How many times I gotta explain where I was and what I was doing? You gotta explain. Are you being funny right now? I'm Lucille Ball. When I'm being funny, you'll know. This is getting out of hand. Madness. Have you been cheating on me? The story's made up. If they boo me? If they boo you, we're done. So that was Being the Ricardos, which was directed and written by Aaron Sorkin. It stars Nicole Kidman as Lucille Ball, Javier Bardem as Desi Arnaz, J.K. Simmons, Nina Arianda, Tony Hale, Alia Shawkat, Jake Lacey, uh, and Clark Gregg. And the premise is uh, following Lucy and Desi as they face a crisis that could end their careers and another that could end their marriage. Um, so for a little bit of background on Lucy and Desi, you're getting all the research. I apologize if this ain't your bag, but here we go. Um, so Lucille Ball was born in 1911. Desi Arnaz was born in 1917, a Cuban national. Uh, Lucy was a B-movie actor for quite some time. She worked a lot of different roles. And along the way, um, she eventually met Desi Arnaz uh, in 1940 on the set of a film. Uh, she had been in several films, like I mentioned, and they met on the set of Too Many Girls. And a few months after production wrapped, they uh, eloped, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and she continued to work. He was a band leader at the time. And... Her career went along okay-ish, um, but then eventually it sort of, it just didn't really work out. Um, and she ended up getting a job on a radio show called My Favorite Husband in 1948. Uh, a few years after its popularity, it took off very well, partially because of Lucille Ball, and they wanted to go and, and convert the show from a radio show to a television show, right? Much like how old film converted a lot of theater and theater performers into film performers and made a lot of musicals into movies, TV just borrowed from radio um, because it also was using some of the similar equipment and, and was under some of the similar roofs, you know, CBS and NBC and so forth. And so... They decided to convert the show into a television show, and she was insistent that Desi Arnaz be her husband on the show. They were going to change the name, they were going to make Lucy her husband, or uh, Desi her husband on the show, and she was incredibly insistent even though interracial relationships were not seen on screen at the time, and even though there was a lot of pushback, she was the star, she had the sway, the show was popular enough that she was able to make that happen. Um, I Love Lucy lasted from 1951 to 1957, uh, including a special episode that was an extended-length episode in 1953 called I Love Lucy the Movie. Uh, following 
that show from 57 to 1960. They had the Lucy Desi Comedy Hour. Um, they also were producers on the Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse from 58 to 60, which was an anthology-style TV show. Um, they ended up divorcing uh, shortly after the, Desi, uh, the Lucy Desi Comedy Hour was over. And then she continued on making other shows that continued the Lucy character. She had the Lucy show from 62 to 68, and she had Here's Lucy from 68 to 74. Uh, after their divorce, she also, they had a production company called Desilu Productions, which produced Mission Impossible and Star Trek. Um, and when they finally divorced, she took over the rest of the company and became the first woman to ever run a major television studio. Hmm. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, she even also, during her time, had a Broadway show called Wildcat, which she was the lead in from 1960 to 1961. Um, and so that's kind of a very broad overview of Lucy and Desi and their life. We get some of this event in the context of the film. Um, since they've had to listen to me prattle on for four minutes... Uh, dear, what did you think of being the Ricardos? I really enjoyed the movie. I, um, I know that it is not entirely, like, 100, one-to-one of what, what was going on in the time, and, um, just what was going on in their lives. They, they really condense it down to this, this one week of just kind of, everything hitting the fan at once, I would say, um, which are things that definitely happened, but I don't think that it was in this, in this time frame. Um, but I, I, I enjoyed it in this, in the sense of, of a movie. I think that Aaron Sorkin always finds the, the interesting threads to pull of a person's life and how to put them in an order that is interesting to watch that still gives you I think an accurate version of what this person probably felt at any of these times, but it's just kind of, you know, all at once for the sake of dramatics. Um, but no, I thought that, I thought that Nicole Kidman did, did a good job. I, I absolutely loved Javier Bardem. I thought that he did a fantastic job in the, in the film. Um, I think that probably just like some of my notes are, her wigs were terrible but you know that's not her fault <laughs> no that's fair um and wigs as, as we have discussed i'm not sure if we ever really discussed it on the show um but good wigs and and laying wigs well and that sort of thing is a very difficult process it's a real art form uh false hair in general because also um, on top of wigs, false beards can look just atrocious. It's because they don't look real. It's like somebody who designed it forgot how, like, anybody with this thing on really looks like in real life. They were like, crap, I've never seen a beard before. And they were like, now how do I make a beard? Uh, random, very random aside, dear listener. I think one of the best fake beards I've ever seen is probably Oscar Isaac's in Dune. Oh, I think that that's Some fair. of his reshoots, um required a fake beard because he was clean shaven at that point but again they had something they had something to go off of and, mm -hmm. and they ended up doing a really good job of it instead of being like 
you know, I've never seen hair before. <laughs> um, but going back to being the Ricardos, um, I agree. I really liked this movie. Aaron Sorkin, for those who don't know, has done several biopics and historical films. Uh, he did The Trial of the Chicago 7, which I believed we reviewed on this show. Um, I think so. Um, he has done the Steve Jobs movie. He did Molly's Game. Um, and even though it wasn't a biographical show, he did the TV show Newsroom, which was about a fictitious news group reacting to real stories in, uh, you know, from contemporary, contemporary events, like a year after the event happened. Mm -hmm. Um, so he's a very history driven person. He's very interested in history. Uh, he also is the writer of The Social Network. So he's he's a very biopic-centric person, especially more so lately. Um, and like with Steve Jobs, he decided to, as Lauren put it, take a lot of events that happened over the course of, like, essentially 1952-ish until, like, 1955-ish and cut them all up and sort of stitch them in together into the context of a week, which is a similar trick that he pulled with Steve Jobs by using three different Apple releases um, and, and using those to sum up who Steve Jobs was at that point in his life and what his legacy was becoming and what his relationships were becoming as he continued to grow. Um... I think that that format was more successful there. Yes, I was I was actually waiting for you to, to find a natural break, because I was going to say that exact same thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that um, because in Steve Jobs, time still passes. Mm -hmm. You still get the sense that, like, you know, he has his ups and downs, but, like, in between these events, like, literal physical time is passing in, in the character's life, whereas once you've condensed all of this stuff down to a week, it really feels like these people are having, like, the worst week of their entire lives instead of it being in the framework of several years passing. Yeah. Um, so essentially, you know, what ends up happening is, in real life, Lucille Ball was... Um, accused of, of being a communist by the House and American Activities Committee. Uh, and she ended up having to go in and sort of disprove herself and that sort of thing. And then also in real life, she and Desi Arnaz had marital troubles largely related to his, his drinking and his philandering. Um, and... You know, these were these were big issues that happened, like I said, over a long stretch of time. Um, she's accused in, um, like, 52 while they're making season two of the show, 52 or 53 while they're making season two of the show. Um, eventually, Desi Arnaz goes and, like, makes a public address to the crowd of the taping of an episode, which happens in this movie at the end of the week but in real life happened in season three episode two um so they really they do take a very stretched out time and throw it all into one and it does make it at sometimes feel very dense but then on top of that they also keep flashing backward mm -hmm. so like we're telling this very immediate very now story that in and of itself is already like a condensing 
of a lot of history, and then it's also cross-cut with a lot of back history of the two of them to fill in, you know, why they're here and how they got here. Yeah, it it definitely has a lot of, like, their their story up until this point and, like, what made them who they are now, if that, I guess, if that makes sense. Because um, a lot of the flashbacks are, like, to to Lucy's career from when she started working to her stint in radio to her getting the I Love Lucy show. And then it, we come back to now and then it's like, you know, them meeting in the past. We see all of those things. Um, how how Desi felt about his life from the past versus how he feels about like being a married man and like being what the the movie deems as like Lucy's second in command and like how that makes him feel as this very like you know man man I gotta I gotta be the husband I gotta make the money I gotta be the bread maker kind of man whereas you know she's a working woman and like how that affects him as a person um and I and I needed a little bit of them Mm-hmm. I didn't need all of them because also I think that good storytelling can give me all of those things with with the here and the now. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you put in the right lines, if you put in the right circumstances, I think that as an audience member, I would have been able to to gather those events without needing like every single every single flashback for as long as we had them. Yeah, you can have in this movie there are some very protracted flashbacks. So the runtime on this bad boy is 2.11. And for how much is happening in the present, in the context of the present, there are very protracted flashbacks um, that sometimes pull some of the immediacy away from the now and pull some of the attention away from the now because then we're dealing with the tension of the past and and getting to this moment that we already know that they've gotten to on a certain level and so it can almost pull focus a little bit too much from the moment no and i i think that i think that it also just kind of takes the the steam out of the present like entirely i think that the I think that he does a great job, Aaron Sorkin, um, of of giving me the problems and like giving me like a a, a deadline, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, um, my my I guess my ticking clock, mm-hmm. so to speak, of like if they don't convince people that Lucy is not a communist, the show will be canceled. And what that means to them, what that means to their relationship, you know, and what that means to the people who work here, all of these, all of these spinning plates are, can be, can be knocked out and smashed on the ground by this one thing, by the show being canceled because people think that Lucy's a communist. And I think that every time we go back to the past for so long, we almost forget about the immediacy of what's going on in the present. Yeah, because ultimately, what's going to happen if if the show goes, as far as Lucy is concerned, she will also lose her husband 
and this place of belonging that she has, through sheer will, created for herself. And this is the only time that she really, for her, gets her husband in her life, uh, truly dedicated to her. Um, and so losing the show, you know, she's had career setbacks. That's not really the thing that's going to bump her. The thing that's going to bump her is that this will be the end of her family. This is the end of her home if the show goes down over this. Um, which is a really gripping, strong, emotional through line for Lucille as a character. Um, but yeah, we don't always get the immediacy of that. And also going off of that... Um, so Lucy was in real life brought before the House and American Activities Committee. For a little bit of background on that, don't worry, it won't be long. The House and American Activities Committee was a group that was, um, that mostly in a nowadays context we talk about as being in relation to Joseph McCarthy and 50 and 54 and McCarthyism, right? This red scare of communists invading us at every level. But the House and American Activities Committee was actually formed in 1938. However, it was most prominent and kind of came to an end because of Joseph McCarthy from 50 to 54, where he just became um, a political uh, enemy to everyone. He, he was driving vendettas at people. Anyone that accused him of wrongdoing, you were called in front of the HUAC. Um, and he just started to go through and target not just um, government figures and public figures, but also private citizens. And, you know, this wasn't just you were brought in front of them, potentially censured, and then you went on about your day. You were blacklisted. You lost your job. It was hard to get hired again. Um, and so a great example is like the writer Dalton Trumbo from Hollywood was blacklisted in 1947. And he ended up having to write uncredited as just sort of like a, a script doctor making almost nothing on scripts that won Best Picture Awards and nominees for 13 years. So basically, he he took this committee and used it to his own advantage to to make of, of this time a, a witch hunt. Yes. Essentially, yes. And a lot of the way that people got out of being in trouble with HUAC was going, oh, um... So-and-so, uh, and so-and-so, and so-and-so so -so were at the meeting. Or I know so-and-so was a communist. And so it was very much like the old American sort of, you know, witch trial concept of like, you're a witch, the only way you can get out of being a witch is telling us who else is a witch. Yes. Kind of a thing. Yes. Fascinating. I mean... Old and new, people still use this 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 way of doing things, even even nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, if you ever want to watch a movie about this, um, there's a movie called Guilty by Suspicion from 1991, starring Robert De Niro. That's about a scriptwriter that gets blacklisted. Oh, okay. Um, wow, very much exactly <laughs> like this. <laughs> and so, I think that one of the other things that the movie doesn't do well is I think that. Aaron assumes people know about HUAC and McCarthy and McCarthyism in a much more concrete way, the movie almost just makes it seem like that's this thing that happened. And I don't think that they do a good job always of conveying how serious 
a threat this is. Well, I think that, again, I think that that goes back to the fact that, like, the momentum keeps getting mm-hmm. halted in this movie by by having to tell me all of the all of their personal, you know, Wikipedia facts. Mm-hmm. And they use this, like, faux documentary format when in actuality we could have almost used, I think, some of the faux documentary bits to create more of a context for the right now. Mm-hmm. You know, around the 50s at that time. And they do that really effectively at the beginning, talking about how popular I Love Lucy is as a show. But I think that they could have used that also for explaining how devastating McCarthyism was and some of these other things as well. No, yeah, because they get into the fact that, like, basically if she is if she is convicted, if she is proven to be a communist, that that the show will be canceled. But they never really get into... It's not just that, you mm-hmm. know, yes, the show will be canceled, but that doesn't, you know, in a, she could move on and do something else. You know, she's, she's Lucille Ball, mm-hmm. but no, this could literally halt her entire career. This could ruin everything. This is all of her hard work will literally be, be drowned in the river. You know, it, it'll be nothing left. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that the, I think that it does a really good job I think the movie does do a great job, and actually Lucy Arnez, their daughter, um, posted on YouTube before the movie came out that she was very enamored with Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem's performances, Um, and I agree with her. I think Nicole Kidman does a great job of being this singularly focused, driven version of Lucille that isn't just the kind of goofy character that everyone saw a half an hour a night every Monday. Um, And I think that um, Bardem does a great job. He's so charismatic, though. Like, you know, he does a great job, but also that is just so him. He Mm -hmm. is such a, a... charismatic performer at all times. It's why he was such an um, incredible Bond villain and probably like Daniel Craig's best Bond villain is because he was just dripping with charisma the entire time. I think that that's one of the the things about being a good antagonist in something is to always find their heart. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the reason for them doing anything. And I think that, I think that he finds a way into Desi that, makes the truly authentic uh has authenticity yeah yeah thank you um of who he was as a person you know but also still letting the the hits land where he wasn't a great Mm -hmm. person you know and and having them almost come out of like nowhere because you just you want him to not yeah you want him to be um, you want him to be Ricky. Yeah. You, you want him to be as loyal and devoted a husband as Ricky and not as problematic and troubled a person as Desi could be. And, you know, not saying that he didn't love her, but it wasn't the way that she wanted. And that's why she created this bubble where she could have her, her perfect, her perfect marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, and I do, I do agree with you. I think that, um, I think that Nicole Kidman does a fantastic job of, of really tying into that, that businesswoman 
mindset, this like, no, it has to be exactly like this or else all of it will fall apart Mm -hmm. and how much that means to her. I think that, I think that all of that completely lands with, with her performance. Mm -hmm. Um, I also loved, one of the things that I do love about this movie is, is going into the methodical, like part of her mind aspect of like, you get to watch Lucy you know, going through the script and then playing it out in her head of what the exact episode is going to look like. And I think that that's, I think that they do a fantastic job with that. I think that that's one of the the stronger cutaways from the, from the, um, the present, I guess, that happens in the movie is these like her figuring out how to make the show perfect, regardless of what the context of the the scenario that they put Lucy and Ricky in, whether or not it's going to read and the show will continue mm-hmm. because of that. And I think that those were always great because in the movie, we never actually get to see her technically perform an episode an, uh, of I Love Lucy. Yeah, we see a few um, recreations of particular bits, but the most that we see recreated is of the episode that they're taping... Um, Fred and Ethel have a fight. And so, um, I think it is a very, very powerful way to visualize an artist thinking about the creation of their art. Um, and yeah, I, I agree. I think that it's a very interesting, very compelling little bit, um, that helps ground her character as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I feel like, you know, we we do, as a, as a society that's grown up watching I Love Lucy... Just think it happened. Yeah, and, you know, didn't, don't really think about all of, the, all of the nitty-gritty, all of the work that truly goes into this form of comedy, mm-hmm. you know, to, to make it work. You know, these were, these were performers, mm-hmm. you know, um, the guy who plays, what's his name, Frank? Um... The Neighbor? Uh, Fred, uh, J.K. Simmons, William Frawley, yeah. Yes, I think that, um, I think that knowing now that he was a vaudevillian performer, you know, of course, then he, like, got to be in this show, you know, he knows the business, they all have worked so hard to get to this place, whereas we think it's just like, and that was it, and they walked on, and it was perfect every time, and nobody really rehearsed. No, this thing, this thing was a well-oiled machine. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the stronger points of this, is realizing, you know, something so frivolous for us took so much work and so much dedication from everybody, and it not necessarily always to, to their own benefit. Yeah, well, and... For all of those people who were, all of those filmmakers who are so precise, or all of those artists who are so precise, right? Lucille Ball, Charlie Chaplin. The goal was for it to be so precise, so rehearsed, so executed correctly, that it looked spontaneous, in the moment, uh, and and effortless. And I think that... You know, you've heard me say this all the time, but the comedy being funny is harder than drama every time because it's it's there's more of a science 
to being funny and happy is a harder emotion to pull than than sad too little it's drama too much it's smarmy and you're winking at the audience too much yeah exactly it has to have that effortless appeal to it but in order to get to the effortless bit of it you have to you have to know exactly where all of your chips are going to fall or else it doesn't work or else the whole thing you know it's it's like doing a those um the card houses you know one fall one false move and your entire card house falls on you and 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 that could be the make or break joke yeah um one thing that i also will say that i think on a visual level could have been fun to play with and yeah i don't know why they didn't do it why they did do it what have you uh one i think that and it might have been shot on film and then moved over to digital. I think it was shot on digital. I think that it could have been good to have it on film, just for some of that texture. But two, I think that it could have been really interesting, and I made a tweet about it, to put it in a 1-3-3-to-1 ratio. Make it a box image like it would have been on a TV back when I Love Lucy happened. Mm-hmm. And one that brings all of everything then when you put it in the visual plane has to be closer together. Um, and I think that that could have made for some really interesting compositions and some really interesting framing, but then also made the black and white segments when we see it in her head, you know, she's thinking of it as how it's going to look on that TV. Mm -hmm. And I think that bringing it in from its cinema ratio to a box, you know, a one, three, three to one could have made it a little bit more visually interesting and a little bit more visually compelling and also based it a little bit further into that time period. I think that that's I think that that's fair. Um, I didn't find the cinema ratio distracting. No, because, not at all. Because of the fact that when we did go to her thinking about the show, it did hit that. Um, you know, it it did hit the black and white. It did hit the right framing, to my knowledge. No, it stayed cinema cinema ratio in mm. the flashes too how she was perceiving it. It was still a wide format. Then I would have probably done it more so there mm-hmm. to like really have it feel like you're watching a bit of the show. Whereas like I didn't mind the cinema ratio for like our present day mm-hmm. dilemma of of the where the story is set just because of the fact that then it didn't feel like we were watching a movie. Mm-hmm. We were, you know, this is how I see the world. I don't see the the world in a box frame. I see the world as, as big as my, my eyes can, can perceive of it, you know? Yeah. I also think the box would have made the final shot just all that more impactful for me mm-hmm. as well. That pull up through the rafters where they're framed. Mm-hmm. And it would have been a square frame and a square frame. And I think that that would have been really visually powerful. But that's just a side note. That's not like a critique of the film or like a, I'm going to pull points off from it. I just oh, think no. that that comes from um, thinking a little bit more outside of the box. Uh, oops. Uh <laughs> And I think Aaron Sorkin is sometimes a very um, by-the-numbers director, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. No, I got that. Um, this thing was very uh, clean. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess take or leave how, how that feels, you know, to, to you personally, like... Yeah, I think, that, I think that I would have liked a little bit less of the, the back in the past stuff and a little bit more of the, the here and the now and what this means to these people. I, I really enjoyed all of the, the drama 
and her constantly going back and using this scene as kind of a metaphor for the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I really, I really enjoyed it. I do think that though, when we went to it being the the I Love Lucy show playing not only just the black and white but i think that like the the nice boxy frame would have would have um made it feel like the show it did as as it was you know in the 50s absolutely um and you know another little enac- or off bit of history in it is that they do have the episode order a little bit out of sync and i do and again this is not an absolute critique you would never know this unless you were a diehard lucy stan um, but the actual episode that they should have been making on this timeline that they've presented is not, uh, Fred and Ethel fight. It was an episode called The Handcuffs, where, uh, Lucy and Desi end up chained together in a set of handcuffs of Fred's that he never had the key for. And I think that that could have almost had a little bit more thematic meat for the two of them in terms of the context of their relationship and them having struggles as people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was maybe potentially a missed opportunity to actually use the correct episode um, instead of the one that they ended up using for the movie itself. But that's just another little side note. I think that they ended up choosing this episode um, in order to to have the neighbors, in order mm-hmm. to have um, Fred and Ethel be more a part of the the story that we're telling currently no for sure because otherwise i think that if i'm remembering correctly i don't think that they're really all that in that episode other than the fact of like setting up the the problem for lucy no absolutely it was just a little interesting note that no yeah but i i think that in the context of the movie it works fine as is yeah uh so what would you give being the ricardos out of five um, I think that I'm going to give Being the Ricardos a four and a half. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, overall I really enjoyed this movie and I think that it left me understanding who Lucy and Desi were as people a little bit more than I had just from my own relationship with the show. Um, yeah, and like, although it's not entirely accurate i do think that i think that aaron sorkin always pulls an interesting thematic thread through his through his works and i and i do think that this works mm-hmm. okay um i was gonna go three and a half okay um but i think i might go four i'll go three and a half four okay soft four okay um, I, I think that, I think for the most part, it's pretty strong. I think it does have some, some dragging and some weaknesses in that. Um, and I think that Kidman does do an incredible job with Lucille Ball, the person, but I think that she does, uh, an okay job with Lucy Ricardo. Um, but I think Javier Bardem does absolutely tremendous as both Desi Arnaz and as Ricky Ricardo. I think that, um, and I think mostly it's a very, very strong film and a very, very strong biopic. I do think that, yeah, it just probably needed some of that editorial neatening up of some things. Yeah. Um, so I guess now we should move on from 
uh, the Red Scare and the Stiff 50s all the way to the Swingin' 60s. So let's jump into Last Night in Soho. And as always, we have a clip, so take a listen. Brings you down then. I'm studying London College of Fashion. Room is on the top floor. It's perfect. I love it. I could live any place and any time I'd My dreams. There was a girl. And you are? Sandy. So that was Last Night in Soho, which was directed by Edgar Wright and written by Christy Wilson Cairns. It stars Thomason McKenzie, Anya Taylor Joy, Matt Smith, the late Diana Rigg, um, and Terrence Stamp. Um, and I'll also give a shout out to uh, Michael Ajo, Ajo. If I'm butchering that name, I'm deadly sorry. Um, so the premise is an aspiring fashion designer is mysteriously able to enter the 60s, where she encounter, encounters a dazzling wannabe singer. But the glamour is not all it appears to be, and the dreams of the past start to crack and splinter into something darker. Um, so, I guess since you did the last one, I'll go ahead and, and yeah. start on this one. So this movie, uh, first of all, unlike being the Ricardos, has a has a little bit more nebulous of a time period. You know, they even just call it the 60s. Um, the only clue that we're really given as to when this is happening happens when our, our lead character, it's a split narrative. So a girl is in the present and she discovers that she's able to go back into the 60s. And the only real clue that we have for when this is happening comes early in the movie when she first enters into 1960s London and realizes, you know, where she is. And there's this massive marquee above a, a movie theater that's for Thunderball, the 007 film. And that movie came out in England, December 29th, 1965. So that's really our only definitive example of a start point. How long the events of the 60s last is much more nebulous, but based on some of the music choices that the that the film uses, my guess is, assuming that they only used music from when it was happening, is that it's roughly from late 65, early 66 to 1968. Um, I like Edgar Wright a lot. Um, and I like a lot of this cast a lot. I think Anya Taylor-Joy is tremendous. Um, Diana Rigg is a great, great British actor. Uh, Terrence Stamp is a wonderful, wonderful villain. Um, just great, great menace about him. Um, 
And he's very good at playing, you know, especially very dodgy characters, even if they're sometimes the good guy. So overall, I think that the movie is very, very interesting. Um, It's probably one of Edgar Wright's more tame films in that it's not quite as kinetic as some of his other films. You know, Hot Fuzz has that very kinetic editing um, of moment to moments with a lot of whip pans and and that sort of thing. And of course, Baby Driver is Mickey Mouse, you know, all along. And this is probably some of his more tame uh, filmmaking. It's a little bit more straightforward in how he does it. Um, but overall, I think that this movie is is really quite good. I think that the cast does a tremendous job. It has um, a lot of really intricate, cool visual ideas that they do play out with. And maybe that's also part of the thing is that they couldn't do as much of that stuff because of certain visual effects that they were doing in the shots. Yeah, probably. Um, But overall, I think that this is a really cool, really fun movie, and I think that it's a very effectively creepy movie. Um, yeah, I really, I really quite enjoyed it. Dear, what do you think? No, um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this movie a lot. Um, the longer that we've been away from it, the more that I... I think about it and the more that I want to rewatch it after, you know, knowing how it ends and seeing cuz I know that Edgar Wright is a is a smart filmmaker. And so like I want to see all of the the hints to the end in every bit of of the movie, you know, and and really pick it apart because you know, like with Hot Fuzz, every time you watch it, you get to see more. And you get to you know, know more about who he is as he makes the movie. And I think that, I think that, um, no, I, I just really want to redo it from the, from the beginning again and, and get to, to watch it play out now knowing, yeah, where it ends. Um, I thought that I, I thought that everybody did a fantastic job. I think that Anya Taylor-Joy is is delightful in it um i think that thomason last name unknown at the moment um i think thomason mckenzie yes i think that thomason mckenzie does a great job um i i think that her character is frustrating at times well yeah um but i think i loved her like character arc through the movie Mm -hmm. of her kind of falling into this descent of 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 chaos basically you know around her and like constantly being like I'm not crazy but like with the character's history of mental illness of in in her family everybody just like passes it right on off to like oh she just must be like crazy or whatever and I think that she does a a really interesting job of of falling into this like descent of being like no I'm, I'm not I'm not crazy these things are really happening um I think that Matt Smith does a a really fantastic job in this um i think that i think that i think that everything about this movie falls exactly where it needed to be at the right time and i think that all of the the storytelling is is pretty spot on for it to be effectively creepy yeah you know it's it's a horror film it's a little bit of a haunting story and i think that um 
the the sort of designation as like a psychological horror thriller is pretty fair because for a little while there you are like how much of this is really happening how much of this is in her head um and ultimately i don't think that the movie ever gives you an absolute answer on that but i think that um I think she is definitely going back and seeing all of these things for real. How much of it is affecting her in the present day, I think, is maybe a result of the trips themselves having a little bit of a play on her psyche. Um, but it's almost, I think, a little bit like Haunting of Hill House in that regard of, you know, it's it's this haunting that's a metaphor for for what afflicts you mm-hmm. on a certain level. And, like, who you want to be. Because mm-hmm. I think that she really idolizes... Um, Sandy. Yes. And to to the point of literally changing her whole image to be more like this person who she's like, yes, I love the 60s. I wish I could have been a part of the 60s. I'm going to evoke as much of the 60s as I can with myself, with this person who I find so intoxicating. Yeah. And... There's been a lot of talk about what the movie is about, you know, is it about, you know, sort of, um, you know, is it about a little bit about the plight of the sex worker? Is it a little bit about, um, uh, you know, mental health and mental health issues and how we handle the mentally ill and things like that? Ultimately, I think largely what the movie is about is about how past actions have an impact on the present, how the past doesn't really change, it's our perception of it that Mm -hmm. changes. And also how you can ultimately become too intoxicated by this idea of a past that was never really there. Mm -hmm. Um, To the point where you're willing to see only what you want to see. Yes. It's it's James Bond and Glamour Girls, baby, you know? Like, it's all of that part of it and not any of the seedy underbelly that also came with that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and Edgar Wright, you know, talking about some of the production of the film and where the story was coming from, there are a lot of movies from that time that are about, you know, girl gets into showbiz, gets brutally punished by the business. Uh, that came out from that time and from the 70s and things like that. And this does this very kind of interesting inversion on that narrative as well. Um, and, And I think that ultimately it's about, I think that that's really the core of it. And I think that, yes, it has some elements of, like, mental health, and but I think that that's also to impact the idea of how the past affects the now. Right, because it's her mother's diagnosis and how her mother died that end up impacting not only how she sees herself, but how her grandmother sees her. And then once people learn that history, how they see her and her actions in the present and that kind of thing. No, yeah, and I also think that um, this movie tackles how it feels very dramatically, I would say, but how it feels to be a woman alone. Yeah. I think that this movie, even from the very beginning of her coming to London, having the interaction with the the skeevy um, taxi driver who's like, oh, you know, are you a model? I'd stalk you any day, basically. And like, you know, or or, you know, 
and that leading to her not trusting really any other man that she kind of like comes across to the point of even as she works at the bar not trusting Terrence Stamp who you know rightfully so is coming off very very skeezy and creepy but like again it's all of this perception of like oh well a man can basically do like whatever he wants and because you are a woman you have to be on guard and I think that that's also kind of like where she is and I think that that to the inversion of it you know it, it makes the the twist that much more interesting at the end absolutely and with regard to Terrence Stamp you know one of the bartenders is like when Terrence Stamp's character is walking away he's like oh you know was that guy bothering you or anything and she's like no you know and he's like, oh, well, you know, he used to be an octopus, you know, apparently he was quite the gad about town, very handsy, you know, and that's kind of how we would nowadays describe the kind of model of what James Bond was, you know, if James Bond had been young in the 60s and was old now, people would probably talk about him that way, you know, oh, he was this ladies man, but in a nowadays context, he was, he was a grabby, handsy, bit of a pervert kind of guy, Yeah, you know? No, yeah, for sure. And I and I think that that all ties in really well with the the atmosphere of this movie and I think that it also lends itself to to her infatuation with the 60s as well because she's, you know, she's a, she's a young girl. She's going to to college. So she's probably like 18, 19 years old going out for the first time into the city and I remember when I was, you know, going to move to New York, that my mother was like, oh, God, you're going to move to the city. You're a you're a small person. You have to you have to keep your eye out mm -hmm. for for sketchy things that are going to happen to you. And I think that I think that that also is played really well into this, this feeling of being like because of what you look like and who you are, you are now responsible for how others treat you. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's why she's like, oh, I'm going to go and, and, and glamorize this, this woman who, in, from what I, can set, what I can see, is a strong, independent woman who, who takes no shit from no one and can handle herself. And I want to be like that instead of being afraid. Yeah. Um, the movie, going into the period elements of the film, I think Edgar Wright, you know, that Quentin clip is like, oh, you know, some people just turn up the radio to 11 and, and let that be kind of the, the songs up to 11 and let be, let that be how you feel, period. And I think what Edgar Wright really creatively does is he uses music almost always as the bridge backward into that world. Mm -hmm. However, I think that what he does that um, that Clinton that Quentin warns against in that clip is just relying on that because I think that once we get back to the '60s, it's immersive, you know, and we revisit locations that we're that we're going to in the present, and we're getting to see and compare and contrast in real time as we watch the movie. 60 you know six or so london to now london mm -hmm. and they completely go through and redress the sets and do digital extensions i'm sure um so that way they don't have to redress eight blocks they probably just redress one and then do a digital extension along the way um 
And they completely replace the cars and they change the signage on the outside of some things. And they really do, I think, a a very good job at recreating the 60s. And the costuming is very, very immaculate and very rich. Um, and I, I think that he uses music as a bridge to get you there. But then I think the world actually speaks for itself as the 60s. No, and honestly, going and speaking on the music, I think that he not only uses music in a way of evoking the time period, he also has chosen very specific songs and uses them in in repeatedly different ways. You know, this repetitious fashion of using the same song to mean different things and to evoke different moods. I think that he does that phenomenally well because there's several songs that he he brings back and they get eerier and eerier with each time that we hear them and but it's not distracting yeah either and i i think that he has chosen the music very specifically not just like oh you know just these are 60s songs that are popular yeah throw in whatever it doesn't matter i think that he has chosen songs that that not only fit the time period, obviously, but also fit the story that he's trying to tell. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the songs that he that he chose cover everything from um, from sixty one to sixty eight. He has one song that is technically from um, nineteen eighty, but again, since part of our story is set in the present, mm-hmm. um, a little anachronism like that can kind of be a little bit hidden and skirted around because of the fact that at least half of our narrative is taking place in the now. Um, as far as songs that he uses, he uses A World Without Love by Peter and Gordon, Wishin' and Hopin' by Dusty Springfield, Don't Throw Your Love Away, The Searchers, uh, Starstruck, The Kinks, You're My World, uh, Seal of uh, Black, um, Puppet on a String, Sandy Shaw, Land of a Thousand Dances, The Walker Brothers, There's a Ghost in My House, Ardine Taylor. So he uses um, a lot of stuff that are definitely sort of B and C tracks from the time period, but are still absolutely swinging 60s tracks, which was this youth culture, you know, that, that worshipped bands like the Kinks and the Stones and stuff like that. And I think that it's really, really effective how... Not dissimilar to how um, James Gunn uses very particular songs from the 70s in the Guardians uh, soundtracks. Yeah, and I mean, and also, like the Guardian soundtracks, I think that um, music is so important to the characters within the story as well. With um, with Last Night in Soho, Eloise, you know, has gotten all of these old records from, from her grandmother and has grown up listening to this music and has kind of based her whole her her whole essence on on how they feel and how they make her feel and there's a point where she and um the 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 older lady whose name escapes me um mrs collins diana rigg diana rigg yes um how you know they have this whole conversation about music being better back then you know and I think that I think that yeah I think that it is again this kind of an infatuation with a with a past period without looking at all of its negatives but like hyper focusing on the positives. No, absolutely. Um 
And, you know, the, the Miss Collins character is willing to also forget certain parts of the past. Um, so, spoiler warning a little bit ahead. Um, you can... You can come back probably and just, uh, actually, since we're doing spoiler warnings, um, dear, what would you give Last Night in Soho out of five? Um, I think that I'll give Last Night in Soho... I think that I'll give it a four. Okay. I think that I'll give it a four. Um, I was gonna go, I think, four and a half on it. Okay. Um... I think the character work is is phenomenal. I think that he sets up a great mystery that has a great reveal and reversal. Um, and ultimately, I had a real blast watching the movie. And I think partially one of the reasons that I noticed so many of the clues is because I was diligently taking notes um, as we were watching the movie. No, I'd say that that's fair. I mean, as watch while we were watching the movie, you know, there are points where, like, we go back and forth between time, and, like, you would guess something, and that would end up being right, and I'd guess something, and that would end up being right, mm-hmm. and, like, you know, we've watched too many movies at this point, honestly. No, yeah. We're starting to figure out formulas and whatnot. Um, <laughs> but, um, I... I did. I really liked this movie, and I think this movie is really well done. I think that there are just some some nitpicky things that I can't let go of. Mm-hmm. Can you give me one? Um. Just out of curiosity. The whole like Mean Girls in the present. Uh, that's fair. Actually, I have a note that the Mean Girls scene in the bathroom where they're being bitchy and talking about her was for me, and I don't know if they meant to do this, but it felt like a direct recreation of that scene from Scream mm-hmm. where Nev Campbell's in the bathroom mm-hmm. and, uh, and the bitchy girls come in and, and talk about, um, how suicide is out, but you know, homicide is in and how her mom was like a crazy bitch who killed herself. Oh well, yeah. And, and I feel so like that's, it felt so one-to-one. And I feel like that's maybe like what he's trying to lean into, but I just. Jocasta, I think she feels like a character who had more at one point and got diminished. No, and honestly, like, I could have had less of her. I thought that... I I felt like she could have just started at the apartment. Yeah. And, like, gotten rid of all of the, the like, ugh, I hate the now people and uh, music and teenage culture and man, I just want to be by myself and listen to my records. I felt like I could have gotten rid of a lot of that. Yeah. Um... So now let's get into the spoilers. So the big reveal is that, and if you don't want to hear any of this, but you still are, are listening for some reason, just skip to just skip to the clip. You've already heard the rating. And, and next up we're talking about the French Dispatch. Um, so the big reveal is that Sandy, the girl in the past that Eloise thinks was killed by Jack, is actually Miss Collins, her landlord. And her landlord ended up killing Jack, who was her boyfriend-turned-pimp kind of figure, and then became almost a little bit of a Sweeney Todd. She'd invite them up, she'd kill them, she'd hide the body, and they became all of these people who just became missing persons. Um, and I think that it's a really, really effective reveal. No, I'd I'd say that that's fair because, like, the first time Eloise goes to the past, 
is is her first night in in the room but it is not from where sandy starts her night it is from the moment when these people who are in the floor or whatever have start to meet her Mm -hmm. it's their first meeting of her and i think that that's really interesting because like we could have started her story much sooner if she was the spirit haunting this place. Yeah. But that wasn't the story that we get told and we keep getting it from, you know, yes, it's from her perspective, but it's also through the lens of all of these people. Yeah. Um, And a little bit of the tip of the hat that it's also her is that we start to see ghosts of people, but it's never Sandy's ghost. No, yeah, but it makes you feel like, you know, she's being haunted by the the memory of these dudes who who violated her Mm -hmm. when in reality the the whole twist is is that you know they are basically trapped here Mm -hmm. and you know there's the whole scene with like her on the bed and all of the the men and their hands grabbing her and holding her down and the one guy says help me you know, and you're like, oh, crap, it has been this the whole time. I thought that that was great. I thought that it was very effective because the entire time I felt like it was still perpetuating this whole, this this fear of what men can do to you. Mm-hmm. And this, she's being haunted by all of the Johns of past is because, you know, that's all she is to them. You know, she's seeing it through this lens of being, a, you know, a, a young woman in a city. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that all of that was, was, was super effective. But yeah, no, the moment that like replaying the movie in my head, I was like, oh my gosh, no, it's it's from when Jack, when um Matt Smith's character, it, that's when he first meets her. Yeah. Is is the is the night in the in the club mm-hmm. where she comes in and dazzles all of these guys and the one guy hits on her and she says no and he instantly calls her a bitch. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, yeah, God, yeah, that sounds right. Um, <laughs> things haven't changed that much, am I right, ladies? <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, um, yeah, I thought that I thought that it was all such like an interesting twist. Where yeah, she is like Sweeney Todd and the hell out of all these people. And to your point, the version of Sandy that she sees in the present is never like this weird gruesome ghostly figure even after she supposedly sees the murder mm-hmm. which again is all about perspective yes uh because it's 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 presented through this view from above reflected in this mirror on the ceiling and they use mirror quite often as this kind of metaphor right perspective warped perspective right because a mirror reflects things, but you can also warp a mirror to reflect something else. Or depending on how the mirror is angled, you might see other things. Um, so it's it's definitely also it's it's regularly about perspective on the past um, and this idea of reflections and and things above and things below. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also what's interesting is you know the moment that she decides. You know, that she, or the moment that she realizes that she's sort of done and that she needs to fight to live, right? It's either the past has finally come home to roost with consequences and Eloise is about to get killed by Sandy, 
or she has to choose to live and she has to choose to be alive, right? And and be now, mm-hmm. be here now. And so it's also then very pointedly that the records are the place where the fire starts. Yes. Because her connection to the past is through this music and the the thing that has to that starts the destruction of her connection to the past is the records. No, yeah. Um one one thing that I was like, oh, of course they did it like this that really like bugged me was the whole like, oh, the old lady is going to poison her with the tea bit. I was like, ah, that was one of those like movie tropes where I was like, I have seen this too much. Well, you know, and and she even is like, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to hurt you like I did to to them, you know. I'm not going to stab you. You're going to get a nice pleasant out if you just lay back and and go to sleep after drinking your poison tea. Yeah, but I was like there are so many times, so many times when like the twist ending, the moment that you find out that like the person that you thought was a good person the whole time is revealed to you by you taking a drink of the thing that they gave you. And them not taking a drink of it, too. Yeah. Um, Random, very, a little sidestep. A great subversion of that moment comes from um, a show called Justified, where Margot Martindale, TV's Margot Martindale, um, poisons people, but it's not in the drink itself. It's on the glass. She's laced the cup. And so, like, she goes and she's able to sit there drinking it. And, like, you know, one of her first victims along the way, like, suddenly realizes that she's been poisoned, that that he's been poisoned. She's like, oh, it's not in the drink, sweetie. (laughs) No, I think that that's great. I was, I was thinking of the, the Princess Bride one where where mm. he's like, you know, which cup is it? Yeah. (laughs) Um... But no, so I think that, and Diana Rigg does a great job. Um, this was her last film role, which was a real shame. Um, and I can certainly understand you being a little agitated with the cup thing, the poison thing. It is a little played out. But also we needed to give our, we needed to give Eloise some sort of thing that allowed her to still fight, you know, to, to live in the in the present, you know. No, yeah, but literally I felt like in that moment she was like poisoned and like the poison was affecting her and then... You know, the whole twist is like, yeah, oh, the, the her boyfriend is there. And then the, the Sandy's like, crap, I gotta stab him now. And so she starts going on like a whole slashing thing. And then it feels like Eloise is just like fine for a little bit there. After like, after she gets back into the room and like reconciles with, with the spirits and all that, out of nowhere, it's like, the, did the poison stop poisoning you? No, that's fair. And then you were just like, oh, God, the fire is the most important part of this. Like, I understand that there are a lot of plates spinning right now. As an actor, I get that. But it's also your job to, like, fully commit to all of it. You're be- you've are you been poisoned, you've been stabbed, and now you're in a fire. How does that affect your body? No, that's fair. You can't just be like, all right, now I'm going to f- forget that I was poisoned for a little bit and focus on, on these other things. I felt like that was a little like, eh, sure. <laughs> No, that's totally fair. Um, but yeah, for the most part, I think this was a really good movie. I liked it. I liked it very much. Um, whenever we went into the 60s, and this is another thing for me, whenever we went into the 60s, I actually felt like we were a little bit better in the moment 
of the time period than we were in Being the Ricardos. And maybe that's also just because Being the Ricardos was so limited in terms of where the locations were and what you were exposed to. But for me, I think Last Night in Soho, even though it was less specific with its time period, did a better job of evoking exactly what that time period felt like for the moment than Being the Ricardos did a little bit. Well, yeah, and I think that that also has to do with the fact that, like, music was the the beating heart of it, where I feel like, um, I couldn't tell you one song that, um, Being the Ricardos played, but that wasn't the point of it. It repeated, uh, the only one that comes to mind is a repetition of the I Love Lucy theme song a few times. Well, then there we go, you know, I think that music has a way of, like, really pulling us in to a time period better than really anything can, even with visuals. And I think that that's also why people use it as a cop-out to just be like, ah, throw on whatever, and it'll feel like the time. Whereas, like, I don't I don't think that, yeah, I don't think that um, being the Ricardos really had anything like that that really, like, cemented it as being, like, the 50s. This is 1952 kind of a thing. No, yeah, they weren't just, like listening to the radio anytime they turned on the radio it was to like make sure that nobody was talking about lucy being a communist yeah so like yeah to your point i do think that that last night in soho did a better job of evoking the 60s but i think that um being the ricardos felt more like real people yeah um so yeah i i went four and a half you went four mm-hmm. um and i i think that i stand by that i think that that's fair um, and so I guess... I love that they have the nerve to give the, like, other mean girls names when we don't ever, like, get introduced to them. Yeah, we, like, hear their names very briefly in, like, one of those opening scenes, and then that's just sort of over. Yeah, like, mentally for me, they were, like, mean girl one, two, and three, and, like, that was it, other than Jocasta, who who had to be the center of attention and was a fucking bitch. Yeah. Um... So I think that that pretty much wraps up our discussion, and so now we'll we'll jump forward about a decade uh, to Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, and we have a clip, so take a listen. It began as a holiday. Eager to escape a bright future on the Great Plains, Arthur Howitzer Jr. transformed the series of travelogue columns into the French Dispatch, a factual weekly report on the subjects of world politics, the arts, high and low, and diverse stories of human interest. You don't think it's almost too seedy this time? No, I don't. For decent people. It's supposed to be charming. He assembled a team of the best expatriate journalists of his time. Berenson, Sazerac, Kremens, Roebuck Wright. These were his people. Just try to make it sound like you wrote it that way on purpose. So that was the French Dispatch, uh, written and directed by Wes Anderson. The cast uh includes benicio del toro adrian brody tilda swinton leah sado francis mcdormand timothy chalamet jeffrey wright Matthew almoraic steve park bill murray owen wilson bob balaban henry winkler louise smith uh, and tony revelori and our premise is a love letter to journalists set in an outpost of an American newspaper in a fictional 20th century French city that brings to life a collection of stories published in the French Dispatch magazine, 
which is meant to be sort of loosely based on The New Yorker, with its illustrations very heavily influenced by The New Yorker. Um, as I said, it kind of takes place in um, 1975, but it also dances around time periods a little bit. Um, with some flashbacks, I feel like, to some some earlier time periods, especially with, like, Tony Revolori as the the early version of Benicio Del Toro's character. Well, I think that the, the flashbacks are in the context of the articles that we're being presented. Yes, absolutely. Um, but the main body of the film takes place in 1975, and most of our flashbacks probably are in the early 70s to the late 60s. With few exceptions. Yeah. Um, and so, dear, why don't uh, why don't you go ahead and, and kick this one off? I really enjoyed this movie. Um, I always I always really enjoy Wes Anderson's like unapologetic style. You know, it's it is a Wes Anderson movie, and if you're not into that, then you're not gonna like this movie. But I always really enjoy being like fully fully submerged into Wes Anderson's, like, point of view and, like, getting a peek into his head. And this movie is so different, but also so familiar feeling. Um, I loved all of the the little episodes of the, the articles that were being presented and, like, all of the visual storytelling that goes with each of them. They're all entirely unique and... Um, it reminded me a lot of theater and I guess that that's probably why it felt so cozy for me because it's like it's like bookend as, as well you know it's got little like points where it gives you exactly you know who wrote the article and the title of it and then it starts to begin and then you hear this new person's voice and it, it starts to tell this whole story and you get all of these great visuals that go with it and it's just it felt like, you know, you were getting to watch little short plays stitched together with, you know, like a like a common theme, which is that they're all articles in this newspaper who whose newspaper head has has just died. And like this is their last issue of the French Dispatch. And I just I loved it. I thought that it was so whimsical, but like also really sad and I just it was it was beautiful to watch very very methodical in the in the details and how they're presented and like I loved um Javier Bardem in his wheelchair feeling like a old Charlie Chaplin Benicio del Toro I, I do this all the time um Benicio del Toro I'm so sorry <laughs> Benicio del Toro in his wheelchair literally doing like a Charlie Chaplin-esque um like stunt where like the the wheelchair like jumps off and it's just like him running around with his it's just great I think that it's really it, it evokes um different time periods so effectively but also feeling like like almost like a dollhouse view of it you know very I don't know it just I really enjoyed it <laughs> No, I think that that's fair. So, um, the movie is, like Lauren said, it's bookended by the obituary, which lays out in detail the suspension of the magazine immediately, and the creation of a final issue, 
which will follow after that. Um, and it's the death of Arthur Howitzer Jr., who is the, the lead editor of the paper. And we end it with, we end the movie with his death and our journalists who we've been following for this movie, telling different stories, coming together to tell the story of Arthur, which was the obituary that you hear at the beginning. Uh, and then it is broken up into a few, sh uh, one short article and three features. Uh, and it starts with The Cycling Reporter, The Concrete Masterpiece, Revisions to a Manifesto, The Private Dining Room of the Police Commissioner, um, and then we close out. And it's sort of in that way an anthology film, but also at the, at the heart of it is art and, and, and culture and the stories of journalists as they also interact with their subject matter and what they're covering and how it impacts them and how they impact it. And I think that it's a very, very clever movie. Um, I adore Wes Anderson. Uh, I think that a lot of people, you know, and, and I know that you didn't mean it in this particular way, but a lot of people do make this kind of, well, it's a Wes Anderson thing. So if you like Wes Anderson or you don't like Wes Anderson you know, then that's that. But I think that there are degrees of Wes, you know? Oh, yes, entirely. I guess I more meant it in the sense of, like, he is not your cut-and-dry kind no. of artist. No, and, 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 I, and I know you didn't mean it in, like, a, a derogatory way toward Wes Anderson at all. Um, but I, I think that this movie has gotten kind of a little bit of an unfair nudging out of awards season this year and and discussion of the great films of the year by everyone just kind of giving it this well it's a wes anderson picture nudge it out of the fucking way kind of attitude um that i think is a real shame because i think this is a very thoughtful very um melancholic movie you know and a lot of his movies have humor and melancholy woven together very seamlessly but for the most part, I thought that a lot of this was very melancholic. And I think it actually gets more melancholic the further into it you go. No, yeah, I think that the movie has definitely, to your point, a degree of melancholic throughout. I think that we, I, with the, the first piece, the, um, the Owen Wilson article of the cycling reporter, mm -hmm. I think that that's probably the, the funniest of all of them, but it looked like a hint of whimsy and a hint of melancholy in there, you know, with like getting to, to watch him literally cycle around and like just ridiculous things happening to him as he like paints a picture of a city by not painting it with all of the, the things that you would expect mm -hmm. um, to, to, yeah, getting to the, the, to the sad ending of like finally getting to the, the death of, of our, our lead. Um, what's his, what's his position? The lead editor of the paper, yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Um, I guess, and at this point, the owner mm -hmm. of of the paper. Um, no, yeah, and I... But I also, like, didn't mind the melancholy. No. I think that it, it really, like, respected an art form, but also was honest about who these people are, what their life entails for them, and kind of you know, the feeling of we've lost something in translation through time since then. And I think that that's kind of how, like, the melancholy really set, at least for me as well. Just kind of like a, oh, 
you know, these, this was, this was somebody's whole world. And now like, we just kind of like buy magazines to like, look at the pictures. Yeah. And also how we've, you know, commodified, it's about the lost art form of a journalist. It's about the lost identity of cities. Um, it's about lost love. It's about lost opportunities. Yeah. It's about one-time experiences that are irreplaceable and unforgettable. And for these people, this is their way of kind of like cementing it. And sharing it. Yeah, you know, sometimes putting something into words is so difficult, but these each of these people found something to write about that they were passionate about in different ways but like something that truly had affected them personally that now as as their job of a journalist is is to is to you know is to write about it is to respond to that stimuli and i i just i really enjoyed this movie you know the longer i've like sat with it i've just i really i really um it reminded me a little bit of like not not in an actual way, but it like in a structural way. It reminded me of like Tampopo. No, I think that that's really fair. These these vignettes that kind of are linked together by a similar theme and a similar idea, because also at the core of it, ultimately is some kind of beyond the journalists themselves each piece pretty much at its core has some sort of character that represents something particular so in the cycling reporter you know the town is is taking on its own sort of reflection on time changing but some things remaining the same but also losing some of those things that make a place unique Mm -hmm. um with the concrete masterpiece, we've got um, Moses Rosenthaler and Simone. And, you know, it's this sort of troubled artist. And how do you make art? And how do you put yourself out there? And how do you reflect it? And make it understandable and tangible? And and that sort of thing. And, and you've got, um, in revisions to a manifesto, you've got this sort of frustrated youth revolt figure who just wants to be taken seriously, Zeffirelli, and taken seriously and to challenge the system, even if he doesn't know exactly what it is that he's challenging it for or what he wants from it. And really what he's doing is is ignoring the blessings of youth along the way as well. No, yeah, rushing to, to being an adult, but that's the very thing that he's rebelling against is this, this authority. Mm-hmm. You know, the right to make my own decisions and to be respected within those decisions, but also, to your point, yeah, missing out on on the joy of being young. Mm -hmm. And with uh, the private dining room, you have the chef, who is a foreigner in a strange land, like our writer is, who has lived his life and is trying very hard, and sometimes you know, is, is truly, um, at a loss for what can be remarkable. And he gets to taste something new. And at a certain point in life, how many opportunities do you have to experience something new again? After you've seen so much and done so much. No, Um, yeah. 
And so it's it's a very thoughtful movie, and I don't think that it's an easy one. Um, not saying that the like the Grand Budapest is an easy movie, but like comparatively to this, it's a much more direct narrative. Mm-hmm. It's a much more straightforward thing, and it also has some of that nostalgic, and this figure that embol you know is is sort of an emblem for that idea. Mm-hmm. Um. But I think that it's really, really effective here, and I think that it's a little bit more challenging because, like Tampopo, you have to, you have to realize what's linking it together, and decide what all that connective tissue is. No, yeah, and I think that um, not just the story, but I also just really enjoyed the the visual storytelling as well. You know, getting to 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 feast upon these these different. Um, pieces with how with how Wes decided to show them mm-hmm. to me. You know, the the first one is very much, you know, Owen Wilson biking around town and being like, hey, this thing and that thing and this thing over there and this thing right here. And then, oh, but this thing right here, you know, you know, it's 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 very almost like clumsy, mm-hmm. but like. There's too many things. It's, <laughs> you know, got to write a, write a short article about it, but fit all of the things that you love about town into it. So you end up like not really getting to go into too much depth, but you end up like almost listing it all out. And then like, um, the, the, the artist one really, you know, uh, it's Tilda Swinton in this lecture hall presenting her, her piece about this artist who who's who affected not only her but like the entire world and like really laying out his life and so we get to jump back and forth between her in this lecture hall presenting her her findings and his life in this like black and white and like this very stylistic prison and like getting bits and glances of his art mostly in black and white but then you get like this one really perfect view of it ultra wide in color and it's just like you know you really get to feel you know what it felt like to to be there you know each of each of these stories have just like such a unique way of being presented that is just you know just just intoxicating to look at and it's i think that this is this is almost like a, a like a love letter to journalism you know the good the bad the ugly I think that each of these has has its own personal story and is told so so wonderfully that you can't help but get completely immersed in each of them as they go by and then almost like abruptly put back into like the present of it being like an article by having Bill Murray be like, so, so this, so this right here. Okay. Okay. You know, just making sure. And then like going to the next person's article. Yeah. And we can really also, my general read on the film is that if it's black and white, it is the past. And that if it is color, it is the present. Mm -hmm. Because, um, all of the prison stuff is in a black and white context and we're talking retroactively about his time. Mm-hmm. And all of that discourse is happening in color. 
mm-hmm. and with the Francis McDormand article, um, revisions to a manifesto, it's almost exclusively in black and white. Um, until the end when she delivers her notes to Bill Murray. No, yeah. Um, there. I mean, there were a lot of... Was it really all in black and white? I guess I hadn't even noticed, you know, it's... Um, parts of it are in black and white. Parts of it are in color. Yes, because... It switches I think, around. I think that hers is the most present mm-hmm. of the stories that we're getting told, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Her events have just happened. Whereas, like, I feel like everybody else is... And, and Owen Wilson's are, are... This is this is the here and the now, but, like, maybe a few years removed. Yeah. Whereas, like, with um the manifesto one, that is, like, his whole life. To your point, it is all in black and white. Almost exclusively, yeah. And, um... Oh, gosh. Uh, the, the, the last one... The private dining room of the police commissioner, he's in this interview in the present that is in color. Yes, which is a which is also different from, you know, Tilda Swinton in her lecture hall. He's now on television giving giving his remarks on something that he's he's done in the past, which just ends up just just reciting the whole thing. Yeah, and I think that um that's definitely something that is much after the magazine is over. Oh, interesting, interesting, interesting. Okay, I didn't, I didn't get that. I'm Thank thinking you. that that comes from after the magazine is done. And this is, um, Reef, Sh- Reef Schreiber? Is that his uh, name? Leave Schreiber, Leave yeah. Schreiber, um, you know, interviewing him posthumously after the, the French Despact has, has ended. Yes. Copy, and okay. And so he's citing his favorite piece that he ever read from the French Dispatch. And so then, in turn, he is now just reciting the whole thing back because he has a typographic memory. Exactly. Interesting. Okay, I hadn't even, hadn't even thought about that. This, this movie has so, so many things to think about. And also, I think that that's why his issue of the French Dispatch or the the story that he's that he's talking about is potentially a little bit later is is definitely retroactive because also his entire style changes from cravats in this leisure suit kind of thing with a mustache to very precisely combed hair, no mustache, black suit, white shirt, black tie. Mhm. You know, we're dealing with very different stretches of time. Well, I guess I had mm-hmm. assumed that, yes, it was an article that he had written in the past. But I think that it's after the dispatch is over, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't really even thought about the fact that it could have been after the article, after all of this was done. The movie plays with time a lot. Mm-hmm. But it has incredible specificity of the time that it's wanting to evoke with how Zeffirelli kind of looks like Bob Dylan, um, with the art styles that he evokes for what um, Benicio Del Toro's career is, and how he deliberately says it's in the modern art movement. Mm-hmm. Um, with the fact that um, certain of the reporters are very distinctly designed off of former journalists and writers for The New Yorker. Um, because I think James Baldwin, as we discussed, is definitely the one that is the the mold for how Jeffrey Wright's Roebuck 
mm-hmm. looks. Um, and so he has a lot of very, very exacting precision. Um, and I was reading up on the pre-production and the production of the movie and all of the art, there were even paintings made for Rosenthaler that never made it to the movie. And it mm. was like a whole team of artists that worked to create um, an entire life's work for an artist that didn't exist. I think that that's so cool. I think that, um, you know, we always talk about how film itself has gotten easier and and it's gotten cheaper, you know. Well, and we dinged Candyman for its representation of an artist's career. Yeah, because all of his work was just like the same thing in different colors, but also wasn't on purposely like that. But I think that to this point, I felt I never felt one time that like, A, this art wasn't real, and B, that this couldn't have been this person's art throughout his entire life. I, I, no, I think that that's, those are, those are little fine details that, that we miss in, in modern film, because also now you had to commission artists, you know, you had to pay people, you had to get real artists to do that. That, that gave that artist a job, money, you know, it's all of these. And one of the artists is now one of the artists who ended up doing all of the, uh, reliefs on the concrete wall Mm -hmm. you know the big art piece at the end he's now incorporated that into his own personal style him learning that process and getting into that headspace created a genesis in him as an artist yes you know it's i think that yeah i you know with um with stuff like the the lord of the rings movies you know them going out and finding real like artisans to to make the the swords and, and the chainmail and all of this stuff you know this is giving people jobs outside of the fact that like outside of the the window of it just being people directly related to the movie itself you know you always think of people being like oh it's it's the actors it's the director it's the directors it's the the producers it's all of the the people who are on set or behind the scenes but you don't even think about the fact that they had to like get like people just completely out of the the realm of filmmaking entirely in order to make these films feel um genuinely authentic and i think that they did a phenomenal job and like the little animated segment that they did air the the film is shot largely in uh anglame i believe and it's anglame artists that ended up doing the animation for the the animated segment of uh, the private dining room of the police commissioner, and it took, like, seven months to make. So, like, this in and of itself is also a very distinct art piece that is very carefully cultivated. You know, the head of an, of the editor of a new, of a magazine like that really at this point was not dissimilar to what Wes Anderson was doing with directing, where he was looking for specific tones and looking for specific textures and weaving them all together um, to create a unique art experience, you know, with every single thing that you put together. Not just shooting it, not just putting it together. Um, Because also Wes Anderson had very specific ideas and little doodles of what some of the art pieces were supposed to be and who some of the artists were that they were supposed to take inspiration from. No, and all of the all of the characters themselves are so specific. Even our B and C characters um, are are so precise in in who their character is. They're not just like person in the background. Nobody is just an extra. If that makes sense. Yeah. 
and I, this cast was huge, um, you know, you, you listed off some names, but there are, there are so many other people that, you know, could have, could have been said, and we would be here all day. And also one thing that I think helps with the period of this film that helped with the period of Last Night in Soho that I think also differentiates these two from being the Ricardos is language. Mm-hmm. And the use of language, you know, Last Night in Soho had the benefit of a Soho street London dialect Mm -hmm. and using that as their baseline for setting you in that period as well. Um, In the French Dispatch, Anderson has this way of writing dialogue that is a little bit complex that makes it sometimes feel older, Mm -hmm. you know, and feel like it's... It's very authentic sounding mm-hmm. for the time period and for who these people are. No, yeah, but it's also very different as well. Mm-hmm. Each person not only sounds like an educated individual that is that their profession is writing, but they also have a different vernacular. And voice. Yes. Um, and I think that he does a really good job of writing period dialogue. One place that I think, for me, Sorkin, going back to being the Ricardos a little bit, suffered just a hair is that I think he wrote Sorkin dialogue more than he wrote 50s dialogue. I think that that's fair. I think that they, they talked really quickly um, and all on, all on top of each other, which is very much an Aaron Sorkin thing to do, you know, very, like, shotgun. But I thought that this movie... Um, there was a precision in the dialogue. There was a precision in everything. This thing was a finely woven machine that didn't go over two hours, not even close to... It was, like... Well, An hour... Hour 40-something? Uh, it is an hour 47. Hour 47, and I felt like this movie just just chugged along so smoothly. Everything was exactly where it needed to be, whereas, like, I felt like being the Ricardos wasted a lot of time in areas. And this is a, it's a rich, it's a dense hour 47. Oh, yeah. I, um, watching this movie, you have to, you have to watch this movie beginning to end without looking away. This is not a, oh, I'll casually watch the movie while scrolling through Instagram on my phone kind of movie, because you're, you're missing a lot of just visual storytelling that that is second and gone you know it is it is not lingering you have to be paying attention and I think that I think that I wished that we had watched this in in theaters I think that on a big screen that this would have been absolutely just a breathtaking experience no absolutely because it was also just a truly profoundly cinematic experience um of these of the three you know I also think Last Night in Soho and and The French Dispatch are ones that I I wish that I could have probably seen on the theater. I was a little bit more comfortable with being the Ricardos being at home on a TV. Yeah. You know, I don't think that that was one that was going to be made more grand by the cinematic experience. No, and... I, I completely I completely agree with that. Whereas like I felt like if we had watched especially the French Dispatch in in film and on on the big screen, we would have been able to see all of those little details nice and big and prominent in front of us. Whereas like on you know, we've got a we've got a nice sized TV. But there would be there's so much at some points going on visually visual storytelling happening that you can you can lose little things just because of the sheer scale of it in comparison to everything else. Yeah. And, you know, unlike um, 
unlike last night in soho where it was so based in music to help get you to some of those places i think that he did a great job of evoking the exact period he wanted entirely with visuals and dialogue oh yeah no for sure and i also think that like the costuming was just phenomenal in this movie there were some things that like i thought were a little hokey like tilda swinton's teeth i loved her teeth oh yeah they were great but they were definitely like a a costumed added thing whereas like the rest of her aesthetic felt completely correct you know her wearing this 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 very very orange outfit you know top to bottom orange it felt like the 70s you know it, it really did she's flowing in her in her in her muumu of of lack for a better term you know with her bright orange nails and her orange shoes and her a- hair perfectly precise for this lecture that she's doing it just everything felt just exactly what it needed to be at that moment you know and and the little bits of of color that we got even in the black and white were were just like exactly what i needed for that time like when we're in the in the in the in the the one with the the cook mm-hmm. with with them all sitting around the table and eating the food for the first time and taking that first bite and then everything turning to color and then you get to see that the granny's hair is purple and I was like, oh, holy crap, because in black and white, you can't tell. But she has this, like, hint of, like, lavender in her hair. And it was just, it, all of it just, it was it was a whole meal with, with, with my senses for this movie. And I just, I really enjoyed it. Uh, the person that you have to thank for those wonderful, wonderful teeth um, is a man by the name of Chris Lyons. And he is listed in the French Dispatch as special effects teeth. Um, he does this primarily. Wow. He does a lot of special effects teeth. Um, Who would have thought that that was like his literal, <laughs> his job description. Mm-hmm. You know, he goes on a date or whatever and he's, they're like, oh, what do you do? And he's like, I do teeth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but not like a dentist. I do special effects teeth. The Witcher, special effects teeth. Wheel of Time, special effects teeth. Um, so yeah, that's that's a very specific job. And he also worked on um, Last Night in Soho as well. Um, again, special effects teeth. Well, that um, one's less obvious, I think, mm-hmm. of, of who exactly were getting those special effects teeth. Um, it might have gone maybe to the dead, the, the ghosts. Oh, I mean, yeah, maybe there was just like a whole effect on their faces to make them feel creepier because also like their identity wasn't necessarily what was needed from that. Well, and Last Night in Soho also had, we discussed it before taping, um, a contact lens technician. So like you get into the makeup jobs and they're very specific people. Yeah. Um, but no, I think that I, to your point, I think that French Dispatch did an incredible job with being very exact but i think that's also because wes anderson is an incredibly meticulous filmmaker and he always has been yeah it's it's exact and all-encompassing but also not without a little smidge of fun Mm -hmm. here and there you know there are some things touches of whimsy yeah that are that that make it feel otherworldly but also completely relatable no absolutely 
Um, so if you had to give French Dispatch a score, what would you give it? Oh, I loved this movie. I'll give this movie a five. I'll give it a five. Yeah, I, I think... I think it's incredibly effective. I think it's incredibly powerful. It's a movie that I've been thinking quite a lot about um, that I want to rewatch already. And, like, I want to rewatch definitely at least Last Night in Soho again. But I have a, a real... It's kind of that same feeling I had with, like, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Like, this is something that I'm very interested in that oh. I want to revisit. That's a that's a good that's a good comparison as well. Like I had said Tampopo earlier, but Ballad of Buster Shrugs is also a great ex- like comparison to the French Dispatch. Not in the way that it's like the same kind of story, but the way that it's like different stories told from a time period. Mm-hmm. Well, and um, random aside, since we've given a suggestion on what certain movies are like, you know, being the Ricardos, I gave Guilty by Suspicion. We've talked Tampopo and Buster Scruggs. Uh, for Last Night in Soho, I would suggest Midnight in Paris. Um, by disgraced director Woody Allen. Um, Speaking, just random aside, real quick about about Last Night in Soho. So um, I really, going into this movie without knowing anything about it, had no idea that it was going to be set in London. Yeah. I I had assumed that Last Night in Soho was going to be in New York. Mm, No. And so, like, the movie started and we were in London and I was like, what? Well, I also definitely, even even though I had seen a trailer, because I know the song Last Night in Soho by Dave D. Dozy, Beaky, Mick, and Titch. Ah, uh, mouthful every time. I had the sneaking suspicion, of course, that it would be set in, in London. I think also the only movie that Edgar's done that isn't set in the UK is Baby Driver. Well, I just, I, I honestly, knowing that it is Edgar, would, you know, now assume, obviously, that it would be in London or in the UK somewhere. But yeah, you know, I lived in New York. There's no, a Soho yeah. in New York. I was like, oh, okay. I didn't really think about it being, like, just something that they throw around for, like, multiple places around the world. But who, who am I kidding? Paris, Texas. Mm. <laughs> New York, you know. Yeah. So, again, totally... Totally random aside. New Mexico. Had yeah. no idea. I mean, those are less mm-hmm. less obvious, I think, that than, like, you know, Martin Luther King Boulevard and, like, how many states have one? No, yeah. Um, I think a five is really good. Um, and I quite liked this movie. Um, and I, I quite enjoy Wes Anderson, and I, I think that this was just as good as any of his other works. I would I would love to be in in a Wes Anderson movie. Um I think that he pulls um pushes the envelope of what it means to be an actor and then also what actors can do within their own careers. You know, I don't I don't ever see the same person playing the same role in a Wes Anderson movie. You may see the same people all of the time, but they're never playing like and and henry cavill is playing chiseled handsome man no absolutely um so that was a great discussion normally at the end we kind of use this for like news or or some of that sort of thing and we'll probably still talk about what we've been not so much watching but doing um in conjunction to you know what we've been what we've been talking about um but uh, I wanted to take a little bit of time, you know, I talked about how period is created by a team of people. And so 
I went and I did research on all of these films, and I thought that I would give you an idea of what that kind of sounds like, and I'll try to be as quick as I can with this. So with Being the Ricardos, our production manager was John Hutman. Our art director was Andres uh, Kubilan, Kubian. Our set decorator was Ellen Brill. If I'm getting any names wrong, by the way, again, I truly apologize. Uh, our costume designer was Susan Lyle, and she had 12 employees under her. Uh, our hair department head was Teresa Hill. Our makeup department head was Anna Lozano. And our prosthetics for Nicole Kidman were Michael Ornelas with 20 additional artists underneath them. There were 24 people who made up the art department. There were 20 people in the sound department. Visual effects were uh, chopped up amongst 42 employees and two special effects people at Future Associate, Brainstorm Digital, 22 Dogs, Mars, and Mr. Wolf. Uh, and then the location department, because part of this also has to include location scouting and that sort of thing. We had Lori Balton as a scout, Jacob M. Torres, and Boyd Wilson as managers, with nine other people below them. Uh, so if you were keeping track of the math for that, I'll go ahead and let you know. Uh, oh, I forgot actually a few people, excuse me. Uh, for music, we had Michael Andrew for the producer, Mary Ramos for the supervisor, and Marcus Tampkin for the coordinator, with eight other people below them, including a voice coach. Um, and it was about 150 people who helped establish the period for being the Ricardos. For Last Night in Soho, by the way, this is all referred to as below-the-line talent. Um, we had production designer Marcus Rowland. The art director job was split up amongst four people. The set decorator was Jude Farr. Costume designer Odile Dix Miro with 25 artists below her. Hair and makeup designer was Elizabeth uh, Yanni Georgiou. Uh, prosthetic designer was Barry Gower, and they had 58 artists below them. The art department had 59. The sound department had 27. Visual effects were split up amongst DNEG, Montreal, London, and India, Clear Angle Studios, in-house, just for the studio, and double negative, with 127 artists and, spe and eight special effects artists. Location included Joshua Bendetti and Tom Marshall for scouting, Cullum Green, Kat Ho, and Rebecca Pearson as managers, with 27 people below them. Uh, music in included uh, Kirsten Lane as a supervisor, with 16 other people below her, for a grand total of 361 people to create period for Last Night in Soho. Uh, the French Dispatch, production designer Adam Stockhausen. The art department, or the art director was again split amongst four people. Set decorator, Rena D'Angelo. Costume designer, Milena Cananero, with 30 other artists below her. Hair, makeup, and prosthetic designer, Francis Hannon, with 27 other artists, including our teeth guy. Art department was 90 artists. Visual effects were distributed amongst Rise Visual Effects, Union, The Artery, and Goodbye Kansas for 135 artists with 11 special effects artists as well. Location was Noel Magis for Scout and Alex uh, Seraf for Manager with six other people below them. Music included Megan 
Courier for coordinator, Jessica DeLynn for licensing, DeLine, I apologize. Randall Poster for supervisor, and Stuart Lerman for producer, with 20 other artists below them, and the sound department had 21 artists for a whopping 353 people to create, period. So, I wanted to go ahead and give that little shout-out, because I talked about the difficulty of it, and you know, it always, every movie takes a village of people. Every single movie takes a massive amount of people to make it happen. You oftentimes need more people than you think, and, you know, on small productions, you have people who usually end up, you know, wearing multiple hats and and filling in for a lot of these. Um, But those were a shout-out to some of the people who, who had to go in and do a lot of research and a lot of drawings and a lot of work to go and not just throw on, you know, some quick things and call it a day, but to try and truly engulf us as the audience into that world and completely wipe away modernity and create an environment that authentically felt exactly like the time that it's supposed to be set in. And so I just wanted to go ahead and and give a little quick shout out to all of those, those people. Um, and give you a little bit, you know, if you're a serious, you know, film person, you probably know all of these things, and and I hope you at least enjoyed the shout-out for them, but, you know, if you're a casual watcher of film and, and you've never really looked too far into it, I hope this kind of helped change your perspective on on what all it takes even just to go back, you know, 50 years. Dear, do you have anything that you would like to say to the listeners? And you know we love ourselves some research. No, that's true. I do. <laughs> um, no, yeah. Um, honestly, I had never really thought about how much work goes into creating something that, you know, we watch for maybe maximum, like, three hours of, of, of our time. This, this took people months you know, this was their their whole deal, you know, and it takes passion and it takes commitment that n- not everybody experiences in their day-to-day life, in their day-to-day job. You know, imagining ha- loving your job so much that you're willing to hate yourself a little bit to do all of this work. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty much all that we have. Um... As far as what we've been watching this week, honestly, not a lot. Um, we watched Halloween Kills uh, between our last taping and this one, and I think that's pretty much the only movie that we've watched outside of that. Uh, we watched some episodes of Peacemaker. We haven't seen uh, the fourth episode, but we saw the first three. Very much a James Gunn thing. Very much feels a lot like Super and Slither. Um which are which are earlier James Gunn's, uh, you know, films. But I think that it works really, really effectively for this character, for this world he's trying to create, for the mood he's trying to evoke. No, yeah, um, to go off of that, I think that the show is definitely not what I was expecting it to be, but in a good way. You yeah. Know, I was really just like, oh, this is going to be like a another superhero thing with super people doing super stuff and... You know, there's not going to be really much more meat to it. And I think that 
Um, I think that the show is pretty much like almost the exact opposite of that. Um, I think that it does have super people doing super things in it, but that's, that's the profession. You know, it's, it's more about who Peacemaker is as a person, who the people who he has associated himself with up until this point, how they are as people. And I think that it's a commentary on this kind of mindset of, you know, I'm willing to kill every man, woman, and child for for justice, for peace, you know, even if it's not necessarily right, I'm willing to do it in for peace. Well, it, it definitely calls into question motive, what you have been led to believe versus what the truth is, also how you how you might perceive your actions, you know, it kind of goes to that whole idea of everyone is the hero in their own story a little bit. And so it's also about opening up his perspective from this very myopic, um, closed off mindset into something that slowly starts to open up a little bit more through exposure to certain things and through having to uh, call into question some of his own actions and motivations. Yeah, and also the the people that he he associates with, uh, you know, how how they've not only shaped him, but whether or not like he's willing to accept that lifestyle anymore, you know, and to move forward after everything he's been through. No, yeah, um, I'm I've been really enjoying the show. I think that it has the right amount of action. Um, and and gore and and fun times but it also has a voice that i think is is needed that i've been wanting you know from from the current like political atmosphere especially here in america i think that this having a having a character that is very much a like live free or die hard kind of dude getting getting to see how the other half lives a little bit more and how how his actions may be not the way that he intended them to be perceived, but how they are being perceived by others, you know, and how that affects them. And honestly, I just, I've been really, um, I've been really enjoying it. I'm, I look forward to, to watching the, the newest episode. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing that we've been doing is we've been playing the Dark Pictures Anthology, uh, which is a series of games, uh, Man of Madon, Little Hope, and um, House of Ashes. I believe that that's the last one, yeah. Um, and I've really been enjoying those. They're kind of these horror pastiche games. You can tell what a lot of their inspirations are. Um, and I've quite enjoyed them. I won't talk too much more because this has been a lengthy episode as it is, but... I've enjoyed them. Um, I've got my, my little faults with each of them. But for the most part, I think that I've been... I've really, really been enjoying the entire experience. No, yeah, and... Although it's not... It's, it is multiplayer, but it is not, like, an active multiplayer. I think that that's probably my biggest note. But um, there aren't that many multiplayer games that we can play together with one console, and so it's always fun to get to play with you, even though I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely terrible. <laughs> um, so that's about all that we have for this episode. Um, we hope that you guys enjoyed it. Uh, next week we're going to be doing kind of um, 
horror and weird things, you know, where we'll be doing old antlers, um, lamb and pig, hopefully. Um, and we might have some guests on for that one, so stay tuned as well. Um, also, you know, I, I mentioned on, on Twitter earlier this week that, um, that we lost a, a furry friend, um, and so even if it's a little bit hokey or a little bit silly, I guess, for you, dear listener, um, this one's for our cat, Amun-Ra, wherever he is. Oh, I'm sure wherever he is, he's, he's, he's having a good time. Yeah. So thank you guys for tuning in. Um, give your, give your pets a, a good snuggle and we'll catch you guys next week. Bye. Bye.